0: Begin with a question. If you were to receive today an invitation to the television show Shark Tank, number one, would you have an idea to market? And more importantly, number two, what would your pitch be? So I think all of us are familiar with the television show Shark Tanks. And by the way, if you've not seen it, you absolutely need to. Since so in its 13th year, the show's won ratings sweeps in its time slot and captured the Primetime Emmy Award four years running. Uh, the show features a panel of investors. They're called sharks who decide whether to invest as an entrepreneur makes their presentation or not. So the sharks, uh, they're they're pretty sharp. They'll find weaknesses, uh, faults in an entrepreneur's product. Maybe they find a fault in the business model or the valuation of the company. Uh, but they're all different. Some some of the investors are kind hearted. They try to soften the impact of rejection. I think here about Barbara Corcoran. Others like Kevin O'Leary. Oh no. He's called Mr. Wonderful, but when he rejects you, it's not so wonderful. He can be downright brutal. Now, sometimes people ask this, the money they invest, is it actually their money? Well, it it is actually their money, though the Sharks are paid uh, to be on the television show. Here's what I want to get to. For those who leave the show with no deal, right? so they've done their pitch, they've tried to sell it, but every Sharks out. Not, not going to do it. For those who leave, it's been my observation that there's really two types of participant. First, there's those who simply scorn what the sharks have said to them. They, they don't want to hear it. You know why? Because they know better. They're going to take their show elsewhere. They're going to show those sharks how wrong they are. But then there's also those participants who listen to the sharks' critique. They want to learn. They want to be stretched. They, they want to make their idea work. And guess what? When you look at the history of the show and its participants, you quickly discover something, that those who are willing to receive critique always, in the long run, come out ahead of those who curse the sharks and walk away, which leads us into our podcast for the week ahead. T- today, I want to re-enter a prayer that we've been looking at over the last few weeks talking, of course, about Daniel's prayer located in chapter 9 in the book of Daniel. And over the last couple of weeks, we've observed the fact that this prayer might best be understood as one of the great teaching prayers of Scripture. I really believe that. So, so don't, don't, don't misunderstand. Daniel's prayer is a great prayer in, in and of itself. Uh, to read it is to find yourself at this beautiful point in Israel's story where God is getting ready to turn a page in history. God is getting ready to set his people free after 70 years of bondage in Babylon. Daniel's prayer is a great prayer. But, but I also believe that one can find in this prayer both a pattern for our own prayer lives as well as, listen to this, prayer themes that are relevant to us even to this day. That's why I call it a teaching prayer. Right? Uh, Read the prayer for the value that it brings to the greater narrative or story of Daniel, but also read it for the themes that it lifts up, including the one that it sets before us today. Today we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 11 of the prayer, where we find a question at the heart of this scripture. Here's the question. Has Israel learned? As Israel walks away from Babylon and the bondage that God has subjected them to, Will they spurn what God's been trying to teach them like a bad shark tank contestant, or will they learn from the curse that they've been under? Let me give you a title. If I had to place a title on this session of our podcast, I would, I would title it this way, the value of a good curse. So let's jump in. Let's start with this question. What, what do you know about curses? I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. Pastor Luke, did you just say curses? And, and actually I did. So what do you know about curses? Of course, for, the, for most of us, the word is not a good word, right? In fact, whether you call them curses, imprecations, maledictions, anathemas, commentations, for, for most of us, these words conjure up images of witches, sorcerers, and demons, a curse, Simply said, is not a good thing, or, or is it? You know, in a, in his book "Cursed Tablets and Binding Spells from the Ancient World," author John Geiger takes readers on a historical tour of curses. It's kind of an interesting book, and he indicates that these have a rather ancient place in history. Uh, in the Roman Greco world, for example, people would utilize tablets to curse or bind individual enemies, opponents, or opposing military forces. In fact, uh, more than a thousand of such tablets, technically they're called defixiones have been discovered from North Africa to England and Syria to Spain. Yes, the curse, it seems, has been around a long time. In Egypt, curses were used to protect the tombs of mummified corpses, Cursed be he or she who might enter this tomb. In fact, I find it fascinating that in 1923, a British archaeological team discovered one such curse at the tomb of Tutankhamun, King Tut. In African, hoodoo represents the practice of cursing. Once cursed, an object is laid in the path of victims who activate those curses by walking over the object that has been cursed. In Middle Eastern culture, the evil eye represents the curse of the envy. Those who have much come under envy, and often the curse of those who do not have what they have. In Germany, the practice of hexing was common. Hexing, of course, from the German root, "hexen," meaning to do witchcraft. In our Western culture, the curse has found its way into plays and literatures. Think about this with me, Romeo and Juliet. What do we find? A curse features a dying Mercutio who curses the Montiags and Capulets with a plague upon their houses. Sleeping Beauty features an evil fairy Carabosse, more recently depicted as Maleficent in Disney films who casts a curse on Princess Aurora, cursing her to die on her 16th birthday. And then there's Shrek. It's kind of a fun show. Yet, as fun as the show is, it does feature a curse placed upon Princess Fiona, who's cursed to live as a human by day, but an ogre by night. And you know what? I could go on and on. I think you get the point. When the word curse is used, it's often associated with some Supernatural power or force, that means harm or evil towards someone or someone. We do not typically associate the word with anything good, but should we? So, so let me ask this question. Are there curses in the Bible? It's interesting that every time I ask someone this question, there's a slight pause, generally followed with a responsive question. Did you say curses? In the Bible I I did but give the individual a couple of minutes and they'll, they'll often acknowledge well I sort of remember a curse somewhere back in Genesis referring of course to Genesis 3 so some people get there and acknowledge well there might be a curse in the Bible but is it good or bad typically we still perceive curses as something bad. Again, are they? So when Noah places a curse upon Canaan, one of Ham's sons, Genesis 9.25, what, what does he want to have happen? Does he wish harm upon Canaan? Or is there something deeper going on? When Joshua places a curse upon any future rebuilder of Jericho, Joshua 6.26 and 27, what, what's meant to happen? Does his curse mean harm? to some future person or people group? When Jesus, in what has to seem like a really odd move to his disciples, places a curse upon a barren fig tree, Mark 11, 14. What's going on? Is Jesus really angry at a tree? Oh, and what about Genesis 3, 14? God's curse upon his own creation. How does that make sense? Why, why would God... Place a curse upon the very thing that he has made. You see, the reality is there really are quite a few curses in the Bible, including the one that we find here in the book of Daniel. Within the context of this great teaching prayer, there's a curse. The question is, what does it mean? So remember the words with me. Daniel's praying this prayer on behalf of all of Israel. And what he knows is this truth. God is getting ready to turn a page in history. Having read the scrolls of Jeremiah, Daniel knows that God is getting ready to set Israel free from bondage that he has placed his people into. Why? Well, in order to bring Israel back to himself. Israel had become so distant from relationship with God, so, so close to what God had to say That he, God, said, you know what, Israel, there's only one way to bring you back to me. And that one way involved the word pain. I'm going to place you into a position where there's nothing left, nothing left to cling onto but me. Now, as Daniel prays, the question is, will Israel, after they're freed from bondage, simply go back to its old ways? In other words, will the people simply walk away cursing God for placing them into 70 years of bondage? Or will Israel return to relationship? Will Israel live as the city of light that God has called it to be? This is where we meet Daniel in this prayer. As Daniel prays, he comes before God in a posture of confession. Why did we enter this 70-year period of pain? because we did it, but you, God, acted mercifully in our lives by placing us, are you ready for this, under a curse. I want you to listen again to the the words. I'm in Daniel chapter nine, beginning verse 11. Lord, we just ask that you give us your insight as we read these words. Okay, here's the verse, quote, all Israel has transgressed your law, and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. What Daniel's doing here is he's confessing, this is what brought Israel into bondage. We refuse to obey your voice. Now keep reading. And the curse, see it there? And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him, against you, God. So did you hear the word? Let me read it again. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. So what, what curse is Daniel referring to? Oh, and uh, what does it mean to come under a curse that is, in essence, originating with God? He is the curser. So, so let's begin with the curse itself. What what curse is Daniel referring to here? So when you, you study history, you, you come to know that he's referring to a curse that he would have learned and become familiar with as a young boy. The curse of Moses that he's referring to here in these words is actually recorded in Leviticus chapter 26. It's comprised of verses 14 to 39. That's Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 to 39. It's a pretty long curse. I'm not going to try to read it to you today, but I am going to entrust it to you for further reading. In fact, I really do believe if you read it pensively, you'll make out the fact that many of its key elements are things that we, right here in the United States today, we're experiencing them right now. We're under it, this curse. What I'm saying to you is if you keep a close eye on the the news, on television and newspapers and news feeds, and then you read this curse, you'll not walk away without recognizing that we are. We're experiencing many of its chief components right now. Think, Think about this. Amongst the elements of this curse are drought. Verse 19 says, I will make your heavens like iron. In other words, they won't give up rain. By the way, there are significant portions of our country facing extreme drought right now, including the state that I live in, which happens to be one of the key, one of the key breadbasket states in our nation. We're in a drought. Fire. Verse 19 says, "I will make your, uh, your earth like bronze. Think of molten bronze, fire, that you cannot put out. Just watch the news. Not not simply our country, but but a lot of the world. This this the past several months have been on fire the entire summer, as we enter fall, it continues to burn. Disease, verse sixteen, it calls out a wasting disease. Hmm. I wonder if we just faced a, a global virus. And I could go on, but I'm not going to. Instead, I want to entrust you to read it. The real question is, what is the purpose of the curse? Why do we find curses in the Bible? What's meant by the curse of Leviticus, now referenced by Daniel? What's its intention? So here I want to say a couple of things. First, I want you to think about the word itself again. What I know is that in our world today, the term is associated with harm. Curses are used with the intent of causing harm to another person or group of persons. But what does the word mean in a biblical context? Here's what I find interesting. In the Hebrew language, the word used for curse is Allah. Note, this is different from the Arabic name for God as used in Islam, which sounds the same, Allah, but means something entirely different. So what does the Hebrew term Allah mean? Technically it does indeed mean curse, but here's what I find interesting. The word has a linguistic tie to our word covenant. That's significant. Why? Think about this with me. God has made a covenant with man, a covenant to do what? To rescue us from sin, from death and the devil. And how will God do this? Well, this covenant is centered on one and only one thing, the person of Jesus Christ. God's covenant with you and me is this, that if we will trust in the work of Jesus Christ, his fulfillment of the law on our behalf, his payment of sins through his blood, then we will have eternal life with God in heaven and on new earth. Ultimately, God fulfilled this covenant with us how by taking I'm talking about second Corinthians 521 here by taking him who knew no sin Jesus and making him to become sin on our behalf in simple terms God fulfills his covenant with us by blessing Jesus under the curse of the cross on our behalf now put this together with me. Here's what that means. When it comes to the word curse in the Bible, the intent is never to harm. No, oppositely. The intent of any curse that we find in the Bible, including the curse of Leviticus, which Daniel is referencing here, the intent of it is to do what is to bring us back to God. And I think that is the intent of the scripture before us what daniel is recognizing is there has been value in this curse yes they have lived under a curse for 70 years the purpose has not been to hurt israel but to bring israel back to god and now they're coming back different a different people israel is now ready to to listen ready to engage the call of god His prayer is a prayer that in essence confesses before God the rebellion that brought Israel 70 years of bondage, but it also professes the rescue that God is effecting, under the hope that Israel will simply return to her calling. I'm going to say this as plainly as I can. There is great value in God's curse, maybe not the curses of the world. But God uses hard things to bring us back to himself, which leads me to a couple of questions that I want to close with today. So question one, I want you to reflect on your own life for a moment. As you look back over your years, what are some of those hard things that God has used in your life to restore your relationship with him? As a longtime pastor, I, I have this conversation all the time. People will tell me about hard times, painful times in their lives, and I'll ask them, okay, that hurt. How did God use it in your life? And you know what? So often people will tell me, you know what, Pastor, actually God used that hard time in my life to grow me, to renew me. I'm a different person because of it. So again, my question to you, when you reflect back on your own life, What have some of those times been where God has used hard things to renew you or to restore you, to bring you back to him? Here's question number two, a little bit tougher. I want you to do some honest reflection in your life today. Is it possible that you right now are under a curse? Man, that sounds harsh. (laughs) Sounds harsh, doesn't it? But but I I don't mean it that way. I, I mean it actually biblically. Listen again to Daniel's quote of Leviticus 26, quote, but if you will not listen to me and you will not do my commandments, if you spurn my statues, if you abhor my rules, then the curse. You see, when, when we hear the words, is it possible that I'm under a curse? We associate them with something bad, but that, that's not biblical. Biblical is. God loves us too much to watch us live apart from his calling on our lives and when the bible uses the word curse it's simply indicating that god is pursuing a relationship with us and that means he will seek to remove anything and i mean anything that is in the way of our living in intimacy with him so let me ask you again is it possible that right now you are under a curse. Is there something in your life right now that God would say, let me remove that. Let me take that out of the way. Let's, let's remove something that's getting in the way of real intimacy, of us living life together. That's what I want you to reflect upon because I, I've come to believe something, that there really is something grace-filled about the gentle way that God does come to us even when there's pain to bring us into a deeper relationship with himself. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me. Um, I'm going to continue to ask you to just pray for me and my family. I'm going to pray for you and your family as well. Uh, Next week, we'll be back with another edition of uh, our podcast. And in the meantime, I wish you a God-sized week.